Welcome into a brand new 300 Yards to Unknown. I'm Rick Gaiman, and I'm coming to you from Blue Wire Studios at the Win Las Vegas. And today, I'm flying solo. That's right. So uh, the idea around 300 Yards to Unknown, continually getting more and more guests, that is still the idea. But we're working on scheduling, working on aligning some guys. I've got some... Uh, Golfers that you know, maybe some golfers that you love uh, might be playing the Masters right now. I don't know. Uh, We'll get those on the schedule. We'll get them in here and we'll ask them all the questions that you are dying to learn about. But for now, I want to do a little bit of an early preview on the RBC Heritage, an incredible, uh, unique event that we have on the PGA Tour. So that's on on the docket for item number one. We'll go through the course, uh, the trends, the data, the history. We'll even maybe go through ranking Uh, the beautiful trophy that they have and they are going to give away on Sunday afternoon. And then part two of the pod, I think we just got to talk about Tiger, right? And I'll be very transparent, uh, recording this without knowing the outcome of what he's done. I've seen him play round one at the Masters. I have no idea what else is going to happen. Uh, But what he has already accomplished is hard to put into words. And I'm going to do my best to try to do just that. But that'll be on the back end. Because right now, I want to talk a little bit about the RBC Heritage. I want to get out in front of this. Obviously, the week after any major championship, there tends to be a little bit of a lull in our our world, a little bit of a hangover. It's hard to go from whoever is going to slip on the green jacket, which again, I I don't know at time of recording this, who that's going to end up being. Uh, But it it essentially gets us a late start on our research and everything else that goes into a normal week because we're also focused on how our game of golf has just changed. So I want to take an opportunity to dive a little bit into this event. And Harbortown in Hilton Head is one of the most unique golf courses that we have on the PGA Tour schedule. It's unique for many reasons. Uh, The course itself, a Pete Dye design, which by the way, what, what does this guy have? 10, 12 different courses on the PGA Tour schedule? Probably not that many, but it feels like it, right? And we're going to have the conversation around whether it's die specialists or whether um, we should be taking less than driver golfers or whatever it might end up being. Maybe a combination of both, but this is truly one of the more popular Pete Design courses out there. Uh, the unique aspects of it. I'd argue it's tree lines, but that's almost not doing it enough justice. The the trees are not just uh, bordering the fairways. They're almost in the fairways. Sometimes they overhang the fairways. More on that in just a second. Obviously, uh, the shorter nature of it. Only 7,100 yards on this par 71, which is composited with only three par fives. That's how we get down to the 71. And these itty-bitty little tiny greens. So already... As you start to read off the fact sheet, as you start to read off the specs of the course, you're like, wow, this is this is kind of different than anything else. 3,700 square feet on average are these greens. That is second to only Pebble Beach. And actually, there's a lot of good crossover with Pebble Beach because what you end up getting at Harbortown is everyone playing from the same positions. These dog legs, these tree-lined fairways, it essentially forces everyone, even the longest hitters, to lay back. In fact, This is the fourth shortest driving distance course on tour. And it's not because you get shorter hitters here. It's because guys cannot unleash the beast, right? They cannot let the big dog eat. They're going to all play two specific parts and they are going to 
really emphasize accuracy over distance. So the comps to Pebble Beach are already very similar because Pebble Beach is kind of similar. Pebble Beach has designated landing areas and everyone plays out of those landing areas, whether you're the longest hitter on the tour or the shortest hitter on tour. And then that's just shot number one, because shot number two is then going to create a situation where everyone's playing from X yardage. And when you look at what it is for this week at Harbortown, X yardage is 175 to 200 yards. As much as I don't like playing the buckets game, we're probably going to have to play the buckets game, right? There's a couple of times a year I like to play the buckets. It's Pebble Beach. It's here. And if you don't know what I'm referring to, there are predefined shot buckets that are stacked are stat tracked by the PGA tour, generally 50 to 75 yards, 75 to 100, 125 to 150, so on and so forth. And I feel uh, our role, the industry emphasizes those on a weekly basis way too much. You know, the, the idea that a golfer could be first on tour from 149 yards, uh, but, but 50th on tour from 151 doesn't make any sense. These guys don't forget how to hit the ball just because they're three yards longer or three yards shorter into a different bucket. But when you get into a situation where everyone's hitting it from the same spot, now I'm listening. The other problem with that theory in general is um, they say most of the shots come from X range. Well, the guys that we want to play, the guys that I want to get access to, the Dustin Johnsons of the world, they're not playing from the same ranges as everybody else. They're playing from much shorter distances into a lot of these greens. But again, not necessarily this week at Harbortown. So 175 to 200. Uh, on average, there are twice as many shots from that bucket of yardages than the PGA Tour average. That's really the only bucket I care about. Most of the other buckets are generally right on tour average, 150 to 175, right on average. 125 to 150, right on average. Uh, you could argue 100 yards and in, is another place that you would want to target, but I'm living in the 175 to 200 yard bucket for this week because everybody's going to be hitting from the same spots. Uh, Harbor Town, it's going to ask you for precision, right? That is not just off the tee. It is also on your approach shots. It's around the greens. It's everywhere. You need to be precise. And I think number nine, uh, the ninth hole, which is a very short par four, is the perfect example of this. So I'll show you an image of uh, hole number nine from behind the green here. And what you're going to see is how claustrophobic these, these fairways and these holes can actually be. You have a situation where even if you are in the fairway, you can be blocked out by the trees. You can be blocked out from having a good look at whatever angle that pin is on. Then you zoom out a little bit and you see this little heart-shaped green this little thin little couple of segments where there's really no middle of the green, it's going to wreak havoc on these guys. So imagine a scenario in which the pin is positioned on either the left-hand side or the right-hand side of this heart, and you're on the wrong side of the fairway. You are essentially blocked out even if you have hit said fairway. It's, it's devastating. And then you get into a situation where those three bunkers behind the green are just big enough to cause havoc, right? I mean, they're, they're tiny, they're minuscule, they're getting bigger and bigger uh, the further you go away from the green, but they just create awkward situations. And when you display this hole on the shot tracker, on the shot link, this is data from, uh, from the media tracker, you're going to see even guys in the middle of the fairway on a 330-yard par four are not necessarily getting up and down for birdie. There are guys who are driving it into the front bunker who are not getting up and down 
for birdie. There's just a lot to deal with. And for me, number nine is the perfect example of the challenges that Harbortown is going to create for these golfers. If you run the regression model, which is something that I like to do, looking at the last 12 years of data for every player on the PGA Tour, every statistic that's available, and comparing that to all of the results at Harbortown for the last decade, it tells the same story. And I always love when the eye test matches the data test. And that's exactly what we have for this week. Driving distance almost doesn't matter. I, I'd actually argue it really doesn't. It would uh, Distance off the tee doesn't matter at all. Driving distance, though, also does rear its head in second shots because driving distance is generally guys that have a great club head speed. They're able to flush it. That does not necessarily change when they get a wedge in their hand or an eight iron in their hand. And if everyone is playing from 175 to 200 yards, that might be an eight iron for one guy and a six iron for another. So distance is not unimportant. It's just not important off the tee. Accuracy, on the other hand, there are only eight other courses on the PGA Tour in which driving accuracy is more important than at Harbortown. It's in the top 12% essentially, of, of those uh, statistics. And then strokes gained approach is fifth, meaning there are only four other courses in which strokes gained approach is more important. So uh, like, what are we setting up here? We're, we're literally setting up uh, being in the fairway or close to it, giving yourself an angle, and then also being able to hit your approach shots. That's what we're setting up. And if you look at the list of previous winners, again, now, now we're looking, now we're getting alignment from uh, the eye test, the data test, and who actually goes out and wins this thing. Last year, Stuart Sink won it. Uh, 19 under par. 100 to 1, by the way. Stuart Sink was 100 to 1. He was 27th in driving distance. That is basically the longest hitter that we've had win this event in the last 8 or 10 years. Because previous to that, Webb Simpson was 107th in driving distance. C.T. Pan, not a bomber. 167th. Satoshi Kodaira, 118th. I could go on and on. Wesley Bryan, 172nd. So you're telling me four of the last five winners have been ranked outside the top 100 in driving distance. You'll also note, all of those guys, pretty good long shots. C.T. Pan was 125. Satoshi Kodaira, 250. Even Wesley Bryan was 60. I don't know how he was 60 to 1 in 2017, but he was. So this is a perfect storm of long shots, right? The odds makers, the bookmakers, uh, who do they favor? They favor the studs. They favor the golfers that smash the ball, that do things that are super sexy off the tee. That's not required. It's not required this week. So not only do you have a situation in which the golfers who are best fit for this course are generally the longer shots. It's a really weird situation that we probably only get once or twice a year. Again, I'm going to continue to go back to Pebble Beach. What have we seen at Pebble Beach? Long shot winners, right? I mean, outside of your Jordan Spieths, your Dustin Johnsons, you've got your, your Ted Potter Juniors, right? I mean, it, it is really a, a perfect, uh, I don't want to say comp, but it's, it's a perfect course comp. It's a perfect tournament comp. It's a perfect situation comp to Pebble Beach. The only thing that could be better is if they played all four rounds of the Pro-Am at Pebble Beach instead of doing the three-course rotation because then we'd have more data. But that's the only thing that I could ever be worried about. If you go back even further, uh, 2016, Brandon Grace was 48th in distance. Jim Furyk has won here twice, 151st. Matt Kuchar, 136th. Graham McDowell, 161. So uh, this is the week where all your Abe Answers, all your Satoshi Kadiras, all your Ryan Armors, they have a shot. There are about 
four or five weeks on the PGA Tour schedule where those guys have realistic chances of winning, and this is it. I think we've been pretty good in the past about identifying which events are better suited for long shots, right? Um, What was it? Hudson Swafford at the American Express. That was a week where I think I made eight bets and all of them were 100 to one or longer, just loading up on long shots. This feels just like that moment. Outside of really Webb Simpson at 20 to one uh, and Jim Furyk at 20 to one in 2015, you can get some pretty good long shot golfers for this event. Let me circle back. Um, Because we are... Oceanside, uh, Bayside, Seaside, they cannot run these greens too fast. So if you're talking about guys who might potentially go from the Masters to Harbortown, they're going to be in for like Velcro on the greens because the Stimp is running at 11 and a half uh, for the RBC Heritage compared to basically 14 or so at Augusta National, 11 and a half. That even negates kind of the bad putters, right? I mean, even the bad putters uh, can smack it around on 11 and a half stimp greens. So this is really a situation where we can focus on accuracy off the tee, approach play, and we can even forget about you being a good putter. Uh, this is one of the few weeks that I will really look at um, a stat called good drive percentage. Good drive percentage doesn't make it into many models. Good drive percentage never gets quoted on the PGA Tour. It never gets recognized as separating golfers from one another, but This week of all weeks, good drive percentage is one of my favorite stats. So straight from the PGA Tour, good drive percentage is the percent of time that a player hits a good drive. No surprise there. They define it as on par fours and par fives, the number of fairways hit plus the number of greens or fringes in regulation when the shot was not in the fairway. So let's think about how this actually works. You hit the ball in the fairway, that counts as a good drive. If you don't, but you're still able to hit the green or hit the fringe, it counts as a good drive. And I like that, right? That that passes the logic test for me. That passes the reason test for me because you're going to be in a lot of situations on the PGA Tour and in a lot of places where you might not, not necessarily have hit the fairway, but you left yourself in good enough position to find a green in regulation or a fringe in regulation. And even this week, uh, where being in the fairway might not be good enough, I want guys who are putting themselves in position to get to the green or close enough on their second shot. And that's all that good drive percentage is asking out of these golfers. So when you start to realize who the guys that lead this statistic are, you're going to be like, yeah, that that makes total sense. Uh, Brian Harmon is number one in 2022 in good drive percentage. Ryan Armour, Louis Ustazen withdrew from the Masters. Uh, Daniel Berger, Martin Laird. What do all these guys have in common? Not particularly long off the tee. They are accurate and they are good enough iron players. And Ryan Armour is another one of these guys that uh, he has to play out of the fairway. Uh, Brian Harmon has to play out of the fairway. Brian Harmon has to be on or around the green in two shots or he gives himself absolutely zero chance of winning this golf tournament. Well, now this is a week for those types of golfers. Um, if you compare that list to the list of golfers that play out of what appears to be the most ideal bucket, 175 to 150, there's going to be a little bit of crossover, but you're still going to find a lot of the best players in the world who are good from 175 to 150. As of right now, names on that list include Tom Hoagie, Xander Shoffley, Victor Hovland, Brooks Kepka, Justin Thomas. Obviously not all of them, nor any of them, probably teeing it up at the RBC Heritage, but this is 
the biggest separator of bucket shots this week. If you did want to play the other side of this, which is the inside 100 yard game, and that's a that is a uh, an area that we've seen a ton of these winners come from. Essentially, Satoshi Kadaira is generally one of the best players in in the in on the PGA Tour from 100 yards and in. Um, you know, you get guys like Chris Stroud and Adam Long and Brendan Todd. They have to be good, right? It's the same way that Cam Smith needs to be an elite short game player to win the Players Championship and to capture two victories already in 2022. He has to be good in the short game. These guys, these guys have to be good from 100 yards and in or else they are in big trouble. If you want to just look at tournament history, uh, Again, there's going to be a lot of familiar names here. And I'm recording this at a time where I don't, I have not seen the finalized field for this week. So I don't know who's teeing it up and I don't know who's not teeing it up. But you can assume the guys that have played here the most are going to end up finding their way to Hilton Head. Matt Kuchar has played 56 rounds at Hilton Head. He's gaining 1.7 strokes per round. Obviously, as a past champion, those numbers are going to be very good. Grant Snedeker, Stuart Sink, Lucas Glover, Luke Donald, all super live. They're all super live. They're playing uh, a ton of rounds at RBC, at, at Hilton Head. They're generally finding themselves with some good results. Even Luke Donald, Luke Donald, former number one player in the world. Luke Donald probably drives it as far as I do. Sorry, Luke. It's probably true at this point. The rest of your game, much, much better. Uh, this is the only week on tour he's live. It's the absolute only week on tour that he is live. Zach Johnson, who's been kind of rounding into form a little bit, the, one of the only few places he's live on the PGA Tour. So I will uh, obviously be diving into everything else you could possibly imagine for the RBC Heritage in terms of key stats and the course metrics and the, the draft king salaries and the odds when all of that comes out. But I do want to point out a few of the prop-related stats because what we're seeing from prop sites is they're, you know, they're giving us the uh, they're giving us the bait and then they're moving lines very, very quickly. So what we're going to have to do is we're gonna have to be quick on this. Um, I mentioned this is the fourth shortest driving distance on the PGA tour. And even though it's the shortest, it really doesn't necessarily translate a lot to guys hitting the fairway. 63.3% of the time, it's 29th on tour, it's about average. So if we use logic and say, well, Guys are hitting it shorter than ever, and they're still not really gaining that many fairways to the rest of the field. What does that mean? The fairways are hard to hit. Makes sense. Greens and regulation, even more difficult. And that continues to make sense. That's 19th most difficult on tour. That's the top third at around 62% of the time because there's few places like Hilton Head that if you are bad with the driver, you are in turn not going to hit a lot of greens. So my strategy for a lot of the props in regards to uh, greens and regulation are not just targeting bad second shot players, bad approach players, guys who are sour from 175 to 200 or guys that are sour from 100 yards and, uh, 100 yards and in. You can also target poor drivers, guys that spray it off the tee. Because if you are... In the trees, you're in prison. You're just like, there's just no chance. You're punching it out and you are already missing those greens. And we're seeing that show itself up in the fact that the green and regulation percent is actually smaller than the fairway percentage. Birdie are better in scoring, both about top third, 
20th and 26th, respectively. 21% of these holes are going to be birdied or better. And the scoring average last year on a par 71 was three quarters of a stroke under par. So you're going to see an opportunity for some pretty decent scoring, especially after what we just witnessed at the Masters, where things were super difficult. There's going to be a reprieve when these golfers do get an opportunity to go to Hilton Head and tee it up. The best golfer in the field this week is going to hoist the Sir William Innes Champions Trophy. That's right. Here is the world-famous trophy rating segment of the show. As you guys know, I've been tweeting out what are the best uh, trophies, what are the worst trophies. We got ourselves an okay one here, so I'll show you some pictures. Sir William Innes Champions Trophy is a 16-inch tall polished bronze sculpture. It's pretty slick, actually. The fun part about this is they actually make the same trophy in an 8-inch version and give that out to the winners of the Pro-Am. So you could, in theory, if you had yourself a really good week as a pro, you could win the Pro-Am with your amateur partner, you could win the RBC Heritage, and you could have an 8-inch version of the Sir William Innes Trophy and a 16-inch version of the Sir William Innes Trophy. My number one question was, who is Sir William Innes and why does this matter? Because when you're talking about rating the trophy of an event, this has to make sense. We'll see if this makes sense. So there is a ton of Scottish influence that plays a role at the RBC heritage. Now I looked into this. There's not necessarily a ton of Scottish related heritage that plays itself into the culture of Hilton Head, South Carolina, but for whatever reason, the founder, Charles Frazier, used Scottish themes when he was uh, creating this event, when he was promoting it and everything else that's involved. Hey, how are you? I can't hear you. You can hear me. Yeah, <laughs> come on. <laughs> All good. So this is more about the event than it is about the area, the region, the city that we're in, which I think is it's fine. At least they're leaning into it. So Sir William Innes is a wealthy Scottish golfer from the late 1700s. Um, you see him pop up in, in popular culture and in books and things like that over the last couple hundred years. So that's, that's what we're dealing with here. And that's why the winner is also going to get this red plaid jacket that you're looking at, which it's red plaid jacket season, right? Or, or, or tartan jackets is what you're going to see. They give a lot of these out on the PGA Tour over the course of the next couple of weeks. The only thing I have an issue with on this jacket is the really tacky patch that's on it that just says RBC Heritage Champion. I think if they got rid of that, they'd do a lot better. Uh, The other really interesting fun fact about this Sir William Innes is as if the trophy wasn't good enough, there's a live version. Yeah, this is like when the University of Georgia has, brings Ugga to the game, right? Brings brings the Bulldog Ugga to the games and parades him around. There is a live Sir William Innes that you can get your picture taken with throughout the course of the week. He'll be out there firing off cannons, doing his whole shtick. So they really do lean into this. The branding makes sense, but it doesn't, right? They're leaning into the Scottish thing, but other than the fact that the founder of the event decided that was going to be the theme, There's really no importance to it. The trophy itself, beautiful, detailed. Uh, You're able to see the details of Sir William Innes' face. It's really well done. I love the bronze factor of it. I think it's a little bit too small. 
I think it could be 20 inches, 24 inches, really make it a hardy trophy. The picture that you saw with, with Stuart Sink holding it, Stuart Sink's kind of a big guy. He kind of dwarfs this trophy a little bit. I think it should be a little bit bigger. Get yourself a, a new patch or remove the patch off the jacket, and I think you're doing really, really well. All is said and done. It's a 7.1 out of 10. Fun week coming up for the RBC Heritage. We are certainly going to be diving more and more into the field, the course, and everything that goes along with it. Stay tuned for all that. But I would be remiss in Masters Week, which is when I'm chatting about this, uh, to not talk about Tiger Woods, right? And what Tiger Woods has done 17 months since his last competitive round, 14 months after a horrific car accident, and he goes out and shoots a one under 71 in round one at the Masters, and he's inside the top 10. That's mind-boggling, okay? I, I, I need to zoom out a little bit on this because I remember the crash, right? Go back before the crash. He had just gotten off back surgery. There was, there was speculation on whether Tiger was going to play again, whether he was going to play well again, what, how long it was going to be until we saw him. Months before the crash in California, months before. So when he goes through this horrific accident that if you remember, uh, I mean, there's always information flying around that is unconfirmed and we have no idea what's going on. And then when you throw Tiger Woods into the mix, it, it, gets, even, it gets even more than that because notoriously his team plays everything very, very close to the vest. So we had seen the crash site images. We had seen the videos. They've got helicopters flying over all this, but really no word for something like 15 hours. I mean, I remember getting summoned to CBS Sports HQ, like, hey, let's do a live hit and talk about what's going on with Tiger Woods. And the fact is, we had no idea what was going on with Tiger Woods. We were out there wildly speculating, right? We had no idea what was happening. And there were rumors and concerns like, I don't know. He doesn't seem to be in good shape. We don't know if he's going to be able to keep the leg. Then finally, like 15 hours later, almost in the middle of the night, if you were on the East Coast, uh, we get the statement that he's been you know, released out of surgery and they put X number of rods in and they did all this stuff. And his, I mean, the stuff, it was horrific, right? I mean, it's just right leg was, was pulverized and they had to basically rebuild the entire thing. And we would come to find out later that there was like a 50-50 shot that they were amputating that leg. That's what I remember. And in the, the days and weeks after that, I did a lot of television hits. I did a lot of podcasts and it was always the same question. Like, what's the expectation for Tiger? And the expectation was always for me, who cares? Like, does it matter? The guy's got 15 major championships. He's got 82 wins. He's a human. Who cares if he ever plays golf again, right? Like that was the thing. It was now about quality of life moving forward. Uh, two children for Tiger Woods. Was he, was he going to be able to play? I don't even say play golf. Was walk around with his kids. Do, do activities with his kids. That was all uh, I think I really cared about. And then you start to get into the details of his rehabilitation, which, which by the way, spoiler alert, still ongoing. The guy that just shot one under 71 in the opening round of the Masters, and maybe by the time you're listening to this, has won the Masters. I have no idea. Maybe he's missed the cut. Maybe he finished T37. I don't care. But by the time you're listening to this, you have seen more Tiger uh, than I have in this moment. 
that guy is still actively in rehab. Every single day, every single day, that guy just beat out, uh, at least for one round, the vast majority of the top players in the world, and, he, and, he's, and he's done it again. The stories that he would tell, and actually stories that you'd hear from others, right? Because he, he's hard to get information out of. Uh, about what he would go through in rehab. And the best moments was when they would roll him outside and lay him on the grass. And that was good enough. Like that, it's just absolutely crazy to think that that man is teeing it up in the largest event that we have in our sport. And he's playing well. There is no chance Tiger Woods does anything not to win, right? Like I will have seared in the image of his wipey fade off of number one, his first shot back in 17 months, not just happy to be there, not just excited to be a part of it, disgusted by the shot that he hit on number one. Disgusted, pure disdain. He hated it. That's that's the Tiger Woods that I know. That's the Tiger Woods that I see out on the golf course. And when you try to figure out what reality that we're living in, where if I could have told you uh, last what, June or last July that Phil Mickelson or even last, I mean, last September, our, our, our reigning PGA champion, Phil Mickelson, is not going to play the Masters and Tiger Woods is, I could not have concocted a scenario in my brain that would have made that possibly come true. I don't know what it would have been. It's rare enough, and I'd have to go back and look at this, but it's rare enough that a reigning major champion does not play the next major, which is, which is what has just happened with Phil Mickelson. That's crazy enough to then say Tiger is going to do it is mind-numbingly, mind-numbingly crazy. So um, I guess the good and bad news for Tiger is uh, you know what he's done at this point more than I have. The interesting thing is what happens next because... Tiger's not like every other player on the PGA Tour. He does not have a schedule that he cares about, right? He is not and has not been preparing for six to eight events that he's going to play on the PGA Tour schedule this year. He's just not, right? He came back and did everything he could to play the Masters, and then what, right? I imagine what you're going to end up hearing, and you might have already heard this, lots of rehab, lots of non-committal uh, language from Tiger Woods about when he's going to play next. Lots of, we're going to wait and see and take it by ear. I imagine uh, the scenario is the Open Championship at St. Andrews is the next time that we see Tiger Woods. That was the original, and myself included, as far as prognostication goes, the original targeted comeback date for Tiger because it made a lot more sense. The conversation around Tiger Woods from himself all Masters Week revolved around his body and his ability to walk Augusta National, not about his game. The Open Championship is going to be played at St. Andrews, 150th edition. Uh, there could not be a flatter, easier walk on planet Earth than St. Andrews. So if he can get through the Masters somewhat healthy, uh, have a couple of good months of, of rehabilitation and getting stronger and stronger, I don't know if I see a scenario in which he doesn't play the Open Championship, right? I mean, the expectations have drastically changed over the course of the last couple of days, weeks, months, whatever you want to call it. There's almost just no scenario in my mind that he does not now tee it up at St. Andrews, which is crazy. Now, will he play between now and then? I have no idea. Probably not. I, I don't think that 
Tiger is going to do the play into the week thing. He's not going to play two weeks in a row. Is he really going to add some weird one-off event so that he can get to the Open Championship in great shape? No idea. But it's not about golf, right? Whatever, whatever Tiger accomplished this week is unbelievable. It's way more impressive than I could have ever imagined. And the fact that he might be in contention, I hope he is. I hope as you're listening to this on Sunday, he's in like the final pairing. That would be unbelievable to me. Uh, but I, I don't know. I don't know. And even if he's not, everything is okay. Um, all right. I think that's going to do it because we've got a big week of content coming. All your RBC heritage needs, whether that's for DFS purposes, betting purposes, one and done. The unique nature of this golf course and this tournament is something that, um, you know, it, it gets me excited, right? We play the same guys every single week, all the time. Now we get to play the Ryan Armors of the world. Now we get to play the Brian Harmons of the world and the Luke Donalds of the world. And whoever else wants to tee it up at the RBC Heritage, we get to focus on those guys. And they get their due a couple of times a year. Um, outside of that, there is going to be, I'm sure, plenty of Masters discussion trying to figure out what seismic change has happened in our game. And then, of course, all the questions in regards to Tiger Woods. But for now, uh, I say thank you for tuning in. This has been a brand new episode of 300 Yards to Unknown. We'll catch you next time.